0: This podcast contains conversations about trauma and other challenging subjects, and may be sensitive for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. If you need resources to get help, please see the show notes. You're listening to Drawn to a Deeper Story. I'm Kath Brew from Drawntoastory.com. I'm an artist who illustrates and educates about marginalised experiences for positive change with a particular interest in identity, belonging and expat life. This podcast is about the lives that challenges and the difficult conversations around them. It's a place to listen openly, to absorb people's truths and to learn how to show up differently for the benefit of everyone. And that's you included. So in the expat and globally mobile community, we talk a lot about identity and belonging and being in transit, this life in transit. We're familiar with adjusting to new cultures, to new countries. And as part of this process, we also question who we are. What does it mean to be me? What does it mean to be a third culture kid? or What does it mean to look Chinese but not speak a word and actually identify as South African. There's a lot to process. And in a lot of this processing, we go back to who we are, who we know we are. We look at our families and our roots and our ancestors and our childhoods. So what happens when that avenue of knowledge and familiarity is not available to you? How does it feel to not have that same connection to your roots? And today I'm joined by Liz Harvey. Liz is adopted, but not just adopted. It was forced adoption. And I asked her to come and talk to me today because I think we can learn an awful lot from her journey with identity and how it's impacted her and how it continues to do so. So, Liz, welcome to the show. And thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Cath. Thanks for having me on today. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to delving more into this conversation and hearing some of your experiences and your wisdom that you can bring to us. Before we get into more detail, I wanted to tell the listeners briefly a little bit about you. So, Liz is a mum to two teenage daughters and two dogs. She's a wife, she's a adoptee, she's a complimentary therapist, she's a soul midwife, which is all about being an end of life companion. And she's a sole midwife in training. She's a hospice volunteer, an aromatherapist, lover of all things woo-woo, and a maker of aromatherapy self-care products. So can you please share with the listeners a little
1: bit about your backstory of adoption? How are you now here talking to me? Okay, wow. I'm adopted. I was adopted in England at the age of eight weeks, and I was born in Northampton and brought up in the Midlands, in Harbourn, in Birmingham. I also have a brother who's two years younger than me. He's also adopted. So we're not genetically related. Mm -hmm. So to all intents and purposes, I grew up in a family, in a lovely home, went to a lovely school, but felt like I never quite fitted in. Mm. Um, And I guess we'll talk about identity later. But um, the one thing I'm very grateful for is I've always known that I was adopted. I've grown up knowing that I was adopted, which I think is, is good. And, you know, hats off to my adoptive parents. I think that was the right thing to do.
0: I was going to ask you that, have you always known and how that impacts you differently as a child, if you know, from a very early age?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I don't remember being told I was only two years old. And the story Mm. goes that my, my mum, my adoptive mum, I just call her my mum, has always told me was that a very pregnant friend came around to our house to visit and my mum said, oh, look, Auntie June has a baby in her tummy. Look how big her tummy is. There's a baby in there. <laughs> and apparently she then said to me, you didn't come out of my tummy. You came out of another lady's tummy, but, but I'm your mummy. And, and that was the first utterance of, of me being adopted. Mm. Now, of course, I wasn't old enough to actually be cognizant of that conversation. So even though I didn't have an open conversation, it was always relayed to me via a story, of a conversation Mm. so so yeah that that was the story that I've grown up with and and I've always known
0: Mm. so therefore growing up knowing how did that impact your childhood like do you feel that you looked through a different lens as at your childhood did you feel different to other children and their what they talked about and their experiences
1: Yes, I really did. I, I, I think I grew up throughout all the stages of my life, right from being a very young child, just feeling a bit lost really and a bit sort of out of place. And I remember walking down the street just randomly, completely un, unprovoked and just walking past people, looking at um, mothers of a certain age, looking at ladies of a certain age, their faces and thinking, you, you could be my mum. Mm. I, I don't know whether you're in the same village or in the same country. Mm. Um, I don't even know whether whether you're alive. I mean, it was just bonkers, and to me, it was ever present. It was always there, mm. and you know, even that in itself, I didn't know if that was normal to be thinking like that. I I, I mm. kind of felt guilty for thinking that, but I couldn't stop thinking it. Mm. You talk about guilt.
0: Was that in relation to your your parents, your adoptive parents, or your, as you say, your mum and your dad? It was that towards them.
1: Yeah, I mean. Mm. Looking back, I've, I've educated myself a lot on what it means to be an adoptee. And since finding adoptee Twitter about a year ago, which has been a huge source of comfort and validation for me, you know, reconnecting with other adoptees, I think it's the guilt because as an adoptee, you're, you're kind of expected by society to be grateful. And I am grateful, but I, I like to use the word thankful. I'm thankful for my upbringing and um, the good things that have, have happened for my adoption Um, but yeah, there's a huge amount of guilt for, Mm. for daring to go there and wondering what I might, what might have become of me had I not been adopted into that particular family.
0: Yeah. This is the thing, isn't it? There's an awful lot of what ifs of Mm. what if you'd been able to stay with your parents and then what if you had been adopted by a different family like that? Yeah. I mean, I think for me with, with that, the concept of identity and belonging that, so much of those things that we anchor to give us our identity and that sense of belonging are often things that so um, I say things that we know, but it, it's yeah. almost there's so many unknowns. It's like how do you find a stable
1: emotional space when there are so many unknowns? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's no genetic mirroring at all. You don't look like anybody in your family you don't necessarily behave or think or feel like the people in your, in your family. Mm. And that really does cause issues of, of identity. I have to say. Mm. In what
0: way, like, how did that manifest for you growing up or even now as an adult? Cause I don't imagine it, it changes in, in other ways. Like it's, it's a lifelong thing.
1: It is a lifelong thing, you know, but being an adoptee, adoption is a lifelong thing. It's not just something that happens to little babies. You know, I, I can talk a bit about the effects of, of adoption. Please do go ahead. I mean, maternal separation is trauma. You know, even on Twitter, we, we, we struggle with people saying, for goodness sake, it was a baby. H- how on earth is a baby supposed to A, remember their mother and B, remember being separated and C, know that they're in a different family? Well, you absolutely do. You know, you're, you're in your mother's womb. You're inside her body for an amazing nine months in which time you get to connect with her. You know, you you get used to the, the rhythm of her body, the sway of her walking. Everybody mm. has a different walk. The tone of her voice, her laughter, all of these things you're literally surrounded by. And then suddenly as a baby, you might not remember it, but you can. your body can certainly recall it. It's a felt sense, isn't it? It's like Definitely. children
0: even after birth in a room like will know the sound of their mother those
1: things that are so visceral I guess it is very visceral it is very visceral Um, it's been proven by science you know babies know the smell and lots of other things about about their mother it's primal which is why adoption and maternal separation and that kind of pre-verbal trauma is sometimes referred to as the primal wound which sounds very horrific but it is if you think about it. Yeah. Well, and also going back another another generation,
0: if you think about women's bodies and that you were born with the eggs that you're going to you're going to have for the whole of your life, that yeah. there is a that short phase where you are in your mother who's in your grandmother. Like that that is just mind-blowing to me. And and then you you look at that in an adoption scenario. Where that connection is severed, whether it's severed through forced adoption or whether it's through giving up a child for all kinds of reasons, Mm. that severing is, it's an energetic thing. It's massive.
1: It is. And it is a severance. You know, that sounds Mm. a really big, scary word, but that's exactly Mm. what occurs. Yeah. So for you,
0: how did this then impact, I mean, your future? So you say in your bio that you have to teenage daughters, how did that prepare you for being a mother, going into that, knowing that emotional presence of what motherhood is and going into that? That must have been quite a surreal experience to be pregnant and be giving birth, but also to be thinking about what your own birth mother would have been going through at that time
1: yeah this and this is what i'm saying about adoption that, that people maybe don't realize that at every single stage of your life right from you know being a child being a teenager being a young adult finding your feet finding your way becoming pregnant giving birth mm. medical records at every phase of your life you can't escape it it's there confronting you becoming pregnant was one of the most amazing yet scary things that I've ever done because I couldn't go to my my mother and ask what's it like there was nobody so I I kind of felt like I was on my own Um, Mm. and actually giving birth was was really quite mind-blowing and actually looking into my eldest well both of them but looking into my eldest daughter's eyes for the first time mm-hmm. was just the most spiritual magical experience because it was the first time that I'd set eyes on my flesh and blood and to me that was a huge huge moment it was huge wow yeah
0: I never thought of that actually that really is your family like you yes. someone that is you that you know on that that
1: must be incredibly grounding it was very grounding. And then, of course, there's the pressure of getting it right. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? I mean, yeah. it, it, being a mother was something so huge to me. You know, if somebody mm. said to me, what, what do you want to be growing up? What, what career do you want? I, all I could think of, I never voiced it, but all I could think of was inside was, I want to be a mummy and I want to be a really good mummy and that matters to me. And that, that still holds true today.
0: Understandable, though.
1: Also, that's
0: the, the wonderful gift that you can bring I wondered about having your own children whether that felt like there was a way of healing what you felt was the trauma in your life like did it right a wrong I guess
1: yeah I think it really did I think it really Mm. did yeah I mean the connection I have to my girls is is so important to me and I like to think that we're very close um so yes it has been quite healing actually Mm. I want to clarify I say a, a
0: wrong and I that's quite a strong word to use because there are many adoptions that are wonderful and and yeah. work very well and all that kind of thing but I wanted to kind of go back to your particular adoption in that your mother and your father were forced to give you up and that between in 1945 and 1975 in in England and Wales there were over 500,000 babies that were adopted during that time. And this this premise of women particularly forced to give up children because of attitudes at the time of not being married and you were bad and you were this and all these things which which were incredibly harmful. So that's the context of which I use uh, the word. I also want to ask you, have you been able to talk to your birth
1: parents about all of this? Have you met them? Yes, I have. I, um, the, I think I was actually given access to my file when I was, I think it was 16. My parents had my adoption file and it was always up to them when they divulged my information. And I think mm-hmm. I used to literally ask them every few months. I mean, I was really quite a pest. Um, but I was desperate. I was desperate to know, you know, and they'd say to me, oh, it's not time. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, I just want to know. I just need to know the answers to so many questions so I remember them reading me that file and reading it myself and it was written I can see it now I can smell the old paper from 1974 it was yellow it was typed you know like the old typewriter font you know reading that was was a huge shock did you know at that point that it was a forced adoption or did you just think you'd
0: been given up and had a whole lot of other complex different emotions around that
1: no, I didn't know. Oh, wow. I didn't know. Wow. So I've basically grown up thinking that I was unwanted. That's, that's, that's hard. That's a hell of a... Which doesn't, doesn't really feel very nice, I have to say. So, yeah. And then, of course, when I did meet my birth mother, she, she then explained to me what happened. Mm. And it was like, oh, gosh, I, I had no idea. Was she worried what you would feel towards her? Yeah, she really was because she didn't know what I'd been told. She, I mean, she didn't even know whether she'd find me. But, but yeah, going back to how I found her, I made contact with the National Adoption Register as soon, literally as soon as I turned 18. Mm-hmm. And my adoption was handled by the Church of England Children's Society. The, the church was involved in many adoptions. And you had to basically say if you wanted to find your birth mother. And I think the birth mother had to also write a letter. And if there was mutual consent, then you went through the motions of seeing a social worker and... Then it had to be letters mm. and then it had to be very carefully managed, which is good, I think. Um, and then we finally got to meet and that was just incredible. <laughs> and it was in my late twenties, you know, it was, it was quite a few years later, but you know, this stuff takes time. It's not the kind of thing you rush into. In what ways did you feel different after you'd met them? I think I was in shock for weeks, months. Um, I remember asking, we we asked each other for photos <laughs> um, And my adoptive dad, bless him, kindly took the photo that I was going to send to my birth mother, Yvonne, which I thought was quite a sweet touch, actually. Yeah. Um, He always used to take, he was a bit of a photography buff, actually, and he always used to take photos of myself and my brother. So I thought that was really special that Mm. he did that. But I remember getting, waiting for the, everything was done by post, wasn't it, back then? There's no internet emails. Um, And I remember waiting for this brown envelope to drop through my door, knowing that it contained photos of my birth mother, Yvonne. And when it came, I sat my husband down and I was like, I, I want to look at it, but I can't. I cannot actually open this letter. So I had to give it to my husband, Dan, and he had to actually take the photos out. And literally we sat there and he was like, are, are you ready? <laughs> I said, yes, I'm ready. And then I looked at them and I just burst into tears. Yeah. It, was, it was almost too much. Yeah. It's a lot to take much. in. Yeah. And has your brother
0: had a similar journey? Has he looked to find his birth parents or is it something that you talk about with him? Is it is Has he been able to be a support, I guess, as someone who might understand what you were feeling?
1: Well, we're on the same page now and he's actually made contact with three half siblings, oh, wow. two half brothers and one half sister, which is great. I and mean, he has a lovely relationship with them now. But he... W- didn't want to know when we were growing up which is completely fair enough um and now I know that I think again it was out of guilt and oh I don't want to know it would be betraying mum and dad but then when, when you get into adulthood you, you think a bit differently yeah um so yeah I was on my own for a few years but we kind of we're on the same page now yeah so he has made contact with some of his birth family and, and is very happy
0: oh that's really good that's nice yeah
1: <laughs> as we grow older how we view things and how we feel about
0: things changes massively. Mm. How has it changed for you from being a child to as an adult with how you view being adopted? Does it feel different to you in adulthood? Do you feel that there's been a place for your story or does it still feel like it's hidden and it's not something that is acceptable to talk about or it makes people uncomfortable or like how has that changed
1: or has it been the same? Well, I always remember. um, I think I had had friends in my very early teens who, at my school, people knew I was adopted, and I'm not quite sure how it wasn't a big secret, but it didn't get spoken about very often. And you know, Mm. sometimes it would come up in conversation, them, not me. And they always used to say, "Oh my God, I'm really sorry to bring it up. Can I ask you a question?" And Mm. I always used to say, "Yes, please do," because. Deep down, I was actually desperate to talk about
0: mm.
1: how it feels because I think we grew up and we knew one, one other family who had adopted children and we didn't see them very often and we obviously never talked about it. Um, yeah. So basically, I didn't meet any other adult adoptees until, I kid you not, probably about six months ago. Wow. And I'm 48 now. Yeah. Which seems utterly crazy. But this is the thing, and this is this is what happens in the forced adoption era. Mm. You know, babies were taken away; they were placed with an adoptive family, and basically just just left to get on with it. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't happen these days, but there was no. no there was no support for me. There was no social worker visiting, nothing, absolutely nothing, which I find quite shocking, actually. What I think
0: it also does is highlight what the attitudes were at the time around Mm. if you think about your birth mother and the well and your father as well but but your birth mother are not potentially people not talking about it because they'd been told that it was a bad thing to have had a child out of wedlock and then it being a really painful experience so not wanting to talk about it and then socially that has an impact like it's it's yeah you're then dealing with the other end of that is I'm desperately trying to find out who I am and and what this means for me, but it's socially, it's
1: kind of, you get a message. It's not something to talk about. Absolutely. I mean, birth, birth mothers back then were treated horrendously. You know, you hear stories, they were denied pain relief. They were called terrible names Awful. and it was, yeah. The societal taboo was so bad, Mm. but the thing is, and this is part of the inquiry that's going on at the moment by the joint Committee of, of Human Rights, yeah. an inquiry into the right to family life of birth mothers and adopted people, it, everybody involved in forced adoptions of that kind of post-war era. Yeah, it was, it was a big, dirty secret and you did not talk about it. Yeah. So it was terrible for the, for the birth mother and the birth father, I guess, if um, he wanted to be involved, which was the, the case in my case, but the families colluded to keep them apart. My birth father was not allowed anywhere near the labour he was kept away you know the birth mothers were given drugs to dry up their milk which had obviously had side effects I mean yeah. it was horrific No, nobody I mean but people are talking about this now only now because people are still carrying so much trauma and grief you know for decades and so it's good news that this inquiry is actually going ahead
0: so what does the inquiry mean to you what are you
1: hoping that it comes out with I think an apology I mean I think an apology i mean it it can't take away the the effects of forced adoption or you know the things that both my birth family and and me have gone through Mm. but i think it's validation and and recognition of what the practices of the time that there was no support you know set the the support of social services was hidden you know Mm. you didn't really get information on any financial assistance the whole thing it was like everybody was in collusion the church the state the government the maternity Mm. nurses you know so to me, an apology would, would be huge. And, you know, there has been one in Australia. Don't quote me on the dates, but I think it was 2013. Oh, that was with um, Julia Gillard, wasn't it? That's uh, right. Yep. Yeah, so the, the very emotional scenes of her addressing, you know, the Parliament with birth mothers and adoptees present. And Scotland, something's rumbling in Scotland. I think there either is just about to be an apology or one is, as we speak, it's been in the news, um, is being issued And I I really do hope that that one is issued in England. Yeah, well, it sounds like it's
0: very much due. It doesn't take much to start to, like a bit of research and a bit of searching online, it's very easy to start to realise the scale of this and how much I think an apology would mean and what, what that impact is. Because I think also we were talking earlier, you talked about the lack of, systems of support in terms of therapists and and the the very odd way in which people have to be say registered to to be able to support adoptees can you say a bit
1: more about that it's utterly crazy um to be an adoption therapist you have to be Ofsted registered (laughs) Ofsted Ofsted is the the governing body that regulates schools children I, I was just going to say that for people who don't know the
0: British system that's they assess schools about whether they're good or outstanding
1: or poor or whatever like yeah how? they, they rate the education system so i don't know what that's got to do with with being an adoptee competent therapist that's but really... adoptees are literally infantilized you know people seem to think that because what happened to us was done to us as babies that we should be fine that's, yeah, what, that's where it lies and... but yeah but it really doesn't it really mm. doesn't you know the issues of loss and grief and trauma are, are so great really and, but it's so difficult to find an e competent therapist out there mm. and, and, and ofsted are really not helping i have to say so mm. we're kind of campaigning at the moment to to sort that out really
0: well with any luck it, that's the kind of stuff that will come out with the parliamentary committee the inquiry that, yeah um it to, will to set some new standards of what actually needs to happen because there'd be there must be an awful lot of people out there that could actually help but also who need help
1: lots of people yeah Yeah. so the the academic evidence has already been heard I think that was a few months ago now a couple of months Mm. ago um so three academic witnesses have have spoken and that was brilliant to hear them I tuned in live we couldn't go into the houses of parliament at the time because of covid Mm -hmm. but to listen to them give their evidence again was hugely validating I think that's the thing isn't it there's so much
0: silence and secrecy and shame around and I don't mean your own shame but what's put on you as a society puts on you around who you are or what you seen to have done that to have someone publicly come out and say yes this happened yes you're not mad for feeling how you do you're not imagining things yeah that I think energetically also that's massive in terms of settling things and validating something for someone because you're you're finally being seen you're you're not ignored
1: yeah exactly it was huge it was absolutely huge because you do you 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 think well I'm I'm just a person I, I feel what I feel and you know I was always that old chestnut I was always kind of chastised for being oversensitive oh you're, mm. you're too sensitive well now I kind of know why and now it's like my superpower <laughs> so, but I've only recently put that to use and you know doing what I do now with the soul midwife training and the hospice volunteering I realized that that's because I've, I have I have been through so many emotions and and trauma ever since year dot really that mm. that has become a superpower and it's actually I, I kind of own that now and I understand yeah. it yeah I wanted to
0: ask you about that whether your your interest in complementary therapies and particularly end of life work as a sole midwife had that come out of your experiences
1: and how you feel that that shaped the work that you do now I think so I mean one of the traumas from pre-verbal trauma, maternal separation is, is having a nervous system that's always on high alert. Um, it's it's kind of like permanently being in, in fight or flight. But the advantage of that is that you pick up on every single cue because you feel unsafe inside because you didn't have all the cues that you were supposed to have from your mother. You were permanently, I mean, I'm talking literally pre-verbal pre-toddler mm. before you even mm. knew it, you were looking, smelling, feeling, just scanning your whole environment for cues. Am I safe? What's, what's going on? So I've kind of grown up learning to work that way. And now I do, I do use all of those skills in my work to assess, Mm. assess patients, assess how people are feeling energetically. So it has helped me. Yeah, I do use Mm. that.
0: I think there's a, there's great power in that and it, because you can help other people, but I also think when you're able to reflect on it, you realize actually how it can help you as well like you you transform trauma into something positive and powerful and actually being able to help other people
1: yeah I think so yeah so something good has come out of it all Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: yeah when we've talked before you talked about the phrase of being in the fog and it's something that interested me because as I think I might have mentioned to you a lot of my audience are the expat community or people who are Globally mobile, I guess, is, mm. is another phrase, but people who are on the move and who are part of transition all the time. And I sometimes think about the fog that that we experience as expats is that that phase of transition of trying to find your place in a new place until it becomes familiar. There, There mm. is that sense of being in a fog. What does that being in the fog term mean in terms of
1: the adoption community? Can you explain that? Being in the fog, I, I mean, it's not, it's not my favorite term, I have to say. It's really quite weird. <laughs> what it means is that you, you can't see the effects of your adoption experience because you just live and breathe it every day. Mm. And it's only when you connect with other adoptees and you start reading about what has happened to you and what that could mean in terms of shaping you as a person and your identity and all the themes associated with maternal separation, blah, blah, blah. Mm it's only there when you think oh my god there's a reason for why I do that or why why I think or behave like that you know and then you start feeling not quite so bonkers I think yeah well it's shared experience isn't it it's... yeah and by the way I, I have gone through the expat experience oh have you <laughs> I've oh wow done that yes I've been an expat as well in fact we oh, moved right. we moved to Belgium Oh wow. my eldest was was literally 12 months old. Yeah, we, we had six years out there. So I, yeah, I have I have experience oh, wow. of being an expat too.
0: <laughs> You're well versed in yeah. Very weirdness. good at this
1: change business. <laughs> the wonderful <laughs> and the
0: weirdness of, of expat life. Yeah. <laughs> it is a very strange, a it very is. strange space to be in sometimes. The other thing I want to ask you was what can we do to help as someone who encounters someone who is adopted that moment yeah. when you might just drop it into a conversation how can we help in how we respond how we talk to you whether we ignore it whether we treat you like anybody
1: else like what do you need from us and um, i think just please don't respond with something like oh god i'm sorry mm. i've had that <laughs> which is makes me feel quite awkward actually yeah i think just encourage people to talk I, I actually love telling my story. You know, I think it's interesting. And people generally are really curious. So, yeah, just encouraging people to be curious, really. Mm. A lot
0: of the time I, I do a lot of stuff with uh, the LGBTQ mm. community in terms of advocacy and, and yeah. raising awareness and 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 training. And one of the things I've realised with all of my work is that I allow a space of a bit of discomfort when talking with someone because if I shut them down or I get offended at something then they're never going to ask again and for me there's always been a level of allowing a bit of that awkward to exist because people are genuinely interested and they want to know and they want to do the right thing but they just don't quite know how to do it sometimes
1: yeah absolutely some some people don't know you know even even the right terms to use Mm. you know who they talk about who's your your real mother is it's all a bit clunky at first but Mm. that's okay (laughs) That's okay. Some, even some, you know, groups within the adoption triad. And when I say the triad, I mean, the birth mother, the mm. adoptee, the adoptive mother, some, some folks don't like the word birth mother because it get, it implies that all you did was give birth and that's it. Mm. Um, and, and some people stipulate that you must use the term first mother. So yeah, but you know, it, it's okay. And like your whole podcast series, we, 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 it's good to talk. It's good to find other people's stories. Um And sometimes there might be a bit of clunkiness in finding the right terms to use, but, but yeah, just ask and it is good to talk. Yeah. I think that's the key when you say just ask is that to not assume that we know someone's
0: story and to allow Mm. them to tell us than us assume rather than, than asking questions that have an assumption in the question. Yeah. Give someone open space and ask open questions or like, how does that feel? Tell me more. Like I want to hear your story, that, that kind of thing. Yeah absolutely yeah. i'm just trying to think about my childhood and there must have been kids at my school there must have been people that i encountered that were adopted but i mm. don't actually think i can think of anybody that i knew actively mm. knew was adopted until i was a fully grown adult
1: it's interesting isn't it mm. i mean surely we must have been everywhere well you have we, to be <laughs> i mean this, yeah it, it still <laughs> continues
0: today so there's no reason why yeah but that i mean i laugh because it's kind of like nuts it is it's quite funny i mean why is it such a taboo but it was it is Mm. it is you say the person that says to you oh i'm sorry do you think that's because it's seen as and i'm not saying it is the case but do you Mm. think this is socially people see it as second best like
1: that we all we yeah do you think there is that element yeah I mean I even even children have this I, mean, I I don't know what is today's feeling on it by children but you know back then I was called a bastard yeah. I didn't even know what that meant I had to go and ask a teacher um I was teased by some girls who said your mum didn't want you your mum's not your real mum now I don't know where they got that idea from
0: no it's a massive it, moral it's really
1: weird judgment
0: isn't it in it it's mm it would be really interesting to do some research on where that comes from exactly i was talking to someone earlier about the history of patriarchy and society yeah. and demonization of women and the double standards that women are always held up to yeah. and obviously i know i know enough about science that it's not just a woman that creates a baby oh, yeah. but but this this demonization of women and whether oh, i don't know i'm just thinking about whether if the church wasn't involved would it have a difference because of that was where the moral guidelines were set within communities in that in that era Mm. and and even now depending on where you come from but whether
1: there's links that relate to that kind of history yeah i think the the church unfortunately when you hear about the catholic the the mother and baby homes Mm. they did have play a huge part in it which i really don't think helped no
0: were there adoptions done that weren't done through the church because you talked about a church of england Yeah. Um, adoption was
1: adoption done in
0: any other organizations other than the church in in that era
1: I personally don't know I'm sure there were private adoptions but yeah mine was done through the Church of England Children's Society which which is now just the Children's Society they've dropped the Church of England but I don't know is the answer no it's interesting doing these talks with people actually because I always have this idea that
0: (laughs) that we're going to learn a lot (laughs) and it's about seeing people and learning things, but actually I do sometimes wonder if I'm just creating more questions. <laughs> um, Ask away, that's fine. Yeah, but but just like there's there's not always answers to all of this stuff. Yeah, that's true. And so I'm interested in the conversations that you've had with your daughters now. Yeah. And the types of conversations that you have with them, whether that's influenced how they view the world.
1: I'm very open with my girls. It's, you know, we're, mm. we're quite an open family. And, you know, this is it that this is the whole thing about adoption it didn't just stop with me I've basically started a new ancestral line really yeah um but we you know we've always we, we never hid it from them and when I was meeting my birth mother obviously you know I, I had they were very young then. but yeah we always just introduce you know this is Yvonne um this is this is this is Mummy's birth mother so yeah that they, they know they they have met Yvonne and Andy and you know I don't I don't them very often but I, I don't see any reason to hide it from them because because it's just me. It's just my history. I've got nothing to be ashamed of. It's it's just how I came to be. And, and yeah. you know, they, they should be part of that. They should know the history of that. Yeah. Being a good parent to them is also about them
0: knowing their history from a medical point of view so that yeah. down the line, if there's any genetic things that they, they understand where they've come from and yeah. are able to be informed about that. Cause I imagine that's a, that can be a big thing for people.
1: It's a huge thing. Um, and again, every time you go somewhere new, like a new job, you have to have a medical or you change medical practices. There's always the question, do you have any history yeah. of blah, blah, blah in your family? And I've always had to go, I don't know I'm adopted. And then when I met my birth mother, I kind of had to interview her with all these questions, do you have any history of mm. bowel cancer in your family? or just it? Because
0: I thought I need to know. Yeah. I know this is a really strange analogy, but but I was thinking of expats often talk about when they move somewhere that when there's an emergency or something happens, you have your go-to people that will help you out yes. if, if anything goes wrong or yeah. anything. And often in some countries, you have to form those connections really, really fast. Yeah. And so you're asking people personal questions or being at a level of intimacy with a complete stranger that you don't really, you wouldn't do normally. And, sure. and I was thinking about that when you were saying about asking your mother about the history of bowel cancer. It's like you, yeah. you these odd experiences that put you into places of asking things that you wouldn't ask someone who is essentially a stranger to you at that yeah. point. Like you're genetically connected, but that's it.
1: It is really mind-blowing. And it turns out yeah. that I do actually, I have a condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is a condition all right, that affects yeah. the musculoskeletal system. Um, I have faulty collagen, basically. So growing up, I always had issues with my feet, uh, with my knees, I had to wear orthotics. Um, my teeth were all over the place because they moved too much because of the collagen. Um, there yeah. were loads of issues. Um, I, I didn't think anything of it. And then when I did meet my birth mother, in fact, I actually died. T- I actually diagnosed her. I was diagnosed with this condition oh, really? and you know she carpal tunnel syndrome, broken ankles, mm. you know, just just basically being very bendy and hypermobile as yeah. as we both are. So I was able to diagnose back up the chain to her. Wow.
0: That must have been bizarre. Which is really crazy because
1: <laughs> usually it comes down the other way, but Yeah. But yeah, so we do share some genetic unfortunate things as well yeah. as nice things is
0: that weird though they're the, like the unfortunate things almost does that is that almost nice because you know yes. that it,
1: you're connected it's strangely comforting yeah that's what I was thinking <laughs> because I know where they've come from yeah How, that's really odd <laughs> yeah it really is weird I remember the first time I looked at her I, I, the first time I met her I couldn't stop looking at her hands mm. which is really weird because you think you'd look at her face but it was her hands I don't know what it was about the hands I couldn't stop looking at her hands Mm. I
0: think hands are really actually a really intimate part of your body they're they're a real they're kind of a bit like someone's eyes they're they're an insight into someone's soul hands I think maybe that's why yeah yeah interesting and do you find that your experiences I was going to say as a child but even as an adult do you find that it made you more assertive about how you wanted to live your life because Often people who've had to really look at who they are tend to, particularly in early development and early life, you don't just follow the pattern so well like someone who just grows up and gets on with life. There's a level of having to really look within and and know who you
1: are. Do you feel that that therefore influenced how you approached life yeah it definitely did I mean again it goes back to the identity issue you know who, who mm. am I really because I, I don't really feel like I fit in with this family that I've grown up in for, for, for lots of reasons I'm you know I'm, I'm not like them necessarily especially even if there's a clash with with certain members of your adoptive family you, you mm. struggle to know who you really are mm. and like I said it's only I mean it's decades that I've really come into the, the training to be a soul midwife in the end of life and and mm um work around death and dying that I do now it it takes quite a lot of guts to to actually come out and say that that's what you want to be and that's what you want to do because it's not the and and you you people please you you try to follow the norms to fit in mm. so yeah it can take people decades to realize who they are yeah
0: and also to be dealing with like end of life stuff is massive and it's it's, I mean, to sit with people and families who are watching their loved ones die, how how massive that is. And I do sometimes think that, actually not sometimes, I really do think all the time that how the awful things that can happen to us, the difficult things, the traumas, once we can process them, they yeah. can actually be incredibly powerful and allow mm. us to be present in places that other people can't be.
1: yeah yeah that's mm. definitely true I, I find it all quite healing actually for, for mm. me as well it works both ways i've learned so much from sitting with with people at the end of life and giving them complimentary therapy you know no words required you literally just just hold their feet and you don't have to say anything mm. and so much can happen in that moment so much feelings can be can be transferred and perceived um it's, it's quite a magical like liminal space really mm.
0: i always think that kind of work is um it's a huge privilege to do, and and uh, you're very aware of your responsibility, and it feels like an honour to me that kind of work.
1: It is. It is a privilege. It's, it's very humbling as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a sole midwife, but I have worked with people when they're um, when they're dying and sat with people, and it it's mm. quite a remarkable space to to be in, and yeah, it's a very powerful a very powerful moment. So. Mm. Before we finish, is there anything yeah. else that you'd like to say to listeners ab- about this conversation?
1: I just hope people have people have just learned a bit more, had a bit more insight on the world of, of adoption, mm. um, because it hasn't been talked about for so long, and it has actually been in, in the press quite quite frequently in the last few months. But yeah, come and follow me on on Twitter. I'm very active on the kind of hashtag adoptee hashtag adoption adoptee twitter um mm-hmm. you know talking about it just following developments so yeah okay
0: and your own handles on twitter and instagram are at lizzie harvey so it's l-i-double-z-i-e and then h-a-r-v-i-e
1: h-a-r-v-i-e yes i'm an ie not an e1 <laughs> confused as just as to make it <laughs> it's
0: one other thing for people to ask you about yeah exactly
1: exactly <laughs> Oh,
0: that's fantastic. Thank you so much for being my guest today, really, and talking about your experiences. Um, I think it's something that we don't see because it's not talked about. Um, we also need to be able to talk about these things and actually acknowledge them because there's an awful lot of people who, mm-hmm. as you've demonstrated, are living with stuff that they don't necessarily feel they can talk about or they're, they're still processing. So, absolutely. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much. Uh it's been an, an honour. And I will look forward to seeing what happens with the Joint Parliamentary Committee on Human Rights to see what actually comes out of that. And fingers crossed that there's some good things in addition to an apology, but also that there are some well needed changes actually
1: being able to provide support and systems for people. Exactly. So I would say have the awkward conversations. It it, it really is good to talk. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kath. Thank you.
0: If you'd like to learn more about how to have difficult conversations and ways in which you can be an ally to people and their stories, then take a look at the DrawnToastory.com website where you can sign up to the mailing list and keep in touch with activities and developments and ways in which you can be that ally that you want to be.